come and worship together and uh, be able to sing with one another. There's something in us that desires to worship. We were sharing with our kids this week, um, just different cultures. We were talking about different things and how people function differently around the world. And uh, part of my heritage is I'm American Indian, and we were talking about the uh, Indian culture and how they'll even, even worship poles that are carved out of wood, totem poles they'll call them. And there's something in us that wants to worship. There's something there that longs. And sometimes we worship other things, careers and money and power and all those types of things. There's something in us that was designed to worship our creator, which is Jesus Christ. And so it's great to come together and do that very thing. So thank you for each one of you that are able to be, be here. Uh, we were blessed. I was blessed being on the first service. I was blessed again being in here. And uh, I hope that you were as well. If you're a guest, um, just like Pastor Jed said earlier, if you would fill out that card that's in the worship program, uh, that'd be a blessing to us. Uh, we've got a gift that's waiting for you out of the first time guest kiosk. You can drop it in the offering boxes if you want. Uh, but you take it right off the first-time guest kiosk. Uh, we've got a gift that we've prepared for you, we've prayed for you. It would be a blessing to us to give to you. So please, if you wouldn't mind doing that, that would be great. Maybe you were here last week didn't realize that. You thought you got the popcorn box on your way in. No, we've got another gift for you. So go back out there and uh, turn that in, please. And then for those of you who have been around for a little while, a little update for you. This is a, a significant weekend in the history of our church. Um, some people might not realize, but it was six years ago this weekend that we started this church. And so that's an exciting time. Yeah, that's good. We can clap for that. Praise the Lord. I was thinking about it um, just before church started even this morning, and uh, what God's done has been amazing. You know, he's saved people, which <laughs> that alone is enough, right? Like, I was thinking like all the volunteer work and set up and tear down and prayers and sacrificial giving and different thoughts that have happened and planning and all that stuff. It'll be worth it. One person trusted Christ, and uh, God's done more than that. And he saved multiple people. We've had people lead people to Christ for the first time in their life. They've been equipped to do that. People that uh, become, they grow in the scriptures and know the word better. We've had people share their testimony that uh, they've uh, come out of spiritual comatose. I've heard people say it that way, where they came and they were kind of in a spirit, they were a Christian, but they're kind of in a spiritual funk and God kind of shook them out of that. And we've had, you know, people, addictions broken, all kinds of stuff. And so I think about when we first started the church and six years ago, I stood here in this theater and it was 10 o'clock was when the service was at that time and uh, sharing with people I had no idea who we'd meet, what would happen, and what God would do. And so he goes beyond what we could guess, what we can imagine, what we'd even ask him to do. And as I was reflecting on it, too, it was three years ago this weekend, which I don't know if we planned that or if the Lord kind of worked it out, or I think maybe those things just kind of happened together (laughs) in that. Um, But three years ago this weekend, we launched a project called the Bridge Initiative, which, for those of you who weren't here for that, uh, was a capital campaign to buy a piece of property. And we ended up, for those of you who don't know, we owned some property off of Glenwood Avenue. And so we accomplished that. We did that. And so that's exciting, too. So congratulations on that. Thank you for your generosity, for those of you who are part of that. And then uh, about November, we launched a campaign to build a building on that property. And people have been given very generously to that. So I want to thank you uh, for that. I'm myself, the elders, the leadership team, finance team, all those folks that look at all those things. I'm very grateful for the way that you all have given to that. Uh, but you'll notice in your worship program, probably, that last month, uh, January, um, was the giving was down quite a bit, and we haven't really had that happen before in the six-year history of our church, and so we don't usually talk about money. We're pretty, you know, inconspicuous about finance, and we put boxes out. We don't even pass a plate, so we don't talk about this stuff a lot, but as a family, we want to share this with you, and uh, our finance team told me a couple weeks ago, I think what has happened is that uh, multiple people have shifted their ties, their normal giving that goes to the general fund usually, um, and put it with the, uh, the giving for the building fund. And so when we were doing that campaign, we were really asking to give above and beyond your tithes and offerings. So I just would ask you, if that was you, um, you've shifted and made your commitment to the building fund based on doing that, if you would reconsider that. And uh, for those of you who maybe that wasn't the case, if you would just join us in prayer uh, about the general fund and and what would happen with that. And it's exciting. You know, we want to do the project and all those types of things. But uh, the general fund really pays for the ministry that we do. And so not just keeping lights on, but the things that we do. And uh, so if you would be joining us in prayer about that and in your prayer time, just see how the Lord guides you and directs you if you've reallocated funds or what you've done with all that stuff. And so we just want to be able to have that family talk and uh, share that with you. But the best days of our church, I believe, are ahead of us. And so we've been doing this for six years. God's been saving people. He keeps doing that. Uh, we think he's going to continue to do that. I can't guess what it's going to be tomorrow or what it's going to be in a year from now because he'll do way better than that. And so we're going to um, just see what he has for us. We're going to get into the Word today. We've been going through the, the book of Acts together. We're going to continue to do that. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4. So if you have an app or you want to get to the page or any of that kind of stuff, you can go ahead and do that right now. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump back into the text we've been in for, the, the last, uh, for this year, actually. So let me pray. Father, I come into your presence um, with our church family, with our friends, and uh, even with guests and different people that I might not know yet. And I just pray that you'd speak to us this morning, that you'd make your name known, that people would be connected to you and their lives would be changed, that you would be glorified. God, so pour out your spirit that, that people would have to be different as a result of seeing you today. Have us have an encounter with you, please. And I pray for 
our family. Thank you so much that we can come together and encourage one another and sharpen one another and uh, confess with one another and love on one another and do all the stuff that we do together as a body. And I, and I pray that you draw other people into the kingdom as a result of the way that you're working in our lives. And will you work in our lives as we open up the scriptures today? Will you speak through my lips, please? Um, just say what you want said, how you want it said, whether it's like the first service or not like the first service or any of that stuff. God, that's all up to you. Uh, you know who's here. You know needs. You know who's going to hear these words, and I don't. I don't know every need. But God, we trust you because we know that you've got the power. We trust you because we know you're in control. And I ask that you'd speak to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We've been going through this series in the book of Acts. We've been calling Movement. And we've been talking about the movement. We're talking about the movement of God, which is the church. We see throughout the New Testament. And what happens in the church is that God works in this unique way where he redeems people. He brings them into relationship with him. And they respond in radical obedience to him that then ends up impacting the world around them. And that's his movement. We've been seeing it happen through the book of Acts. But think about everything we've seen in Acts so far. Think about how all the first, we've covered three chapters so far. Everything's been positive, hasn't it? Everything's been kind of like, yeah, cheer, you know, the Christian thing, we should do that, that's great, it's exciting. I was watching uh, Sports Center last night, and Duke beat Miami, I don't know if you saw that or not, and uh, when Coach K was coming off the floor, he was going like this, like, come on, you know, everybody cheer, you know, and then people are going, we're number one. They're actually number three, but no one does number three, right? Like, we're, not, we're number one, you know, they're all excited, and the book of Acts has been kind of like that so far, like, yeah, we're, we're, we're number, think about everything that's happened. Jesus, he's about to ascend into heaven, which is amazing, right? He's about to ascend into heaven. He gives a mission. It's crystal clear. There's no, like, distractions and all the stuff that happens. He says, here's your mission. You will be my witnesses. You will be the people that will tell about me. You will be see- I will be seen through your lives. You will be my witnesses. But wait, don't do it yet. So I'm going to send power. And so he gives a promise. And it's like, all right, yeah, we got a promise. He's going to do He's going to He just does this thing through us. It's exci- We're number one. You know, it's exciting. Cheer. And then what happens is they go and have a week-long prayer meeting. They pick another disciple to replace Judas. And then God sends the power. The day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. It's like, yeah, he sent the power. The very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is then given to believers to enable them to fulfill the commands that God gives us. And so it's like, yeah, it's like this is exciting stuff, good stuff. Peter, Coach P, he stands up. He starts to explain, what, let me tell you what happened. You know, Coach P's out there. He's like, this is what happened. And he explains from the prophet Joel, and he explains from the prophet David. The Psalms in the Old Testament, what had happened? People hear and they respond. See, there was a way that seemed right to them. They were headed that way, but we're told in the Bible that way leads to death. And they turned from that way and they received Jesus Christ as their Savior that day, 3,000 people in one day. It doesn't get better than that, does it? I mean, 3,000 people in one day turn their lives over to Jesus Christ. It's like, yeah, we're number one. It's exciting. And then, you know what happens after that? We get in Acts chapter 2, that, that romantic passage that's a picture of the early church and how the church functioned. They were encountering God on a regular basis. They were seeing him accurately, responding to him through the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread and prayer. And people sensed God's presence in their lives. And it says that everyone, believers and believers, they were all in awe of God because of what he was doing in their lives. They were loving one another. We get a great picture of biblical community in that passage. Remember that Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples because you love, not them, because you love one another. And they're doing that. And they're engaging their world for Christ. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, it says, and the Lord was adding to their number daily, those who are being saved. And he shows us how he wasn't doing it just through mass evangelism, the 3,000 people, but it was one at a time, one life at a time. And we talk about who's your one. And they show, in Acts chapter 3, Luke tells us a story about how it's one at a time. And there's this man, he's sitting at the temple gate, all beautiful, he's lame, he's not able to walk. Peter and John come in, there's all kinds of other beggars too, but he picks this one, and he shares with him Jesus. And then his legs are healed. It's a picture of salvation, and a crowd gathers around, and Peter and John begin to preach. It's like, it's all working, it's so great. We're number one. Then you know what happens in chapter 4? It's a regular part of the Christian life. In fact, it should be a part of all of our stories to some degree, to some extent. That's what the Bible tells us, at least. It's persecution. And it becomes a part of the story all throughout the rest of the book of Acts. There's only three, out of, after chapter 4 on, there are only three chapters that don't mention persecution. It's something that Jesus promised. Remember he told his disciples, they hated me, they're going to hate you. They hated what I said. If they didn't receive what I said, they're not, if you say what I said, they're not going to receive what you said. And so if they did, then they will, but that's not the majority. In fact, Jesus gives a warning to all of us when he's speaking about religious people in Luke chapter 6, and he says, woe to you if everyone speaks well of you. That's a warning. Woe, woe to you. If everyone, it's not like woe to you. It's, it's woe to you. He says, that's what they did with the false prophets. You just tell them what they want to hear. And uh, Paul says to Timothy, one of the guys that he's discipling, a young pastor, and 2 Timothy, we can pop it up on the screen, says, every one of you, 
who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise. So is that a part of our lives? No one wants that, right? Like follow Jesus and no one's like, yeah, we're number one. No, no one does that. That's not even number three, right? That's like, no one wants that. And it becomes a regular part of their life. But you know what you see? Is that God uses that persecution as a platform to make a big deal about his name. It's kind of like Jad was talking about that young lady who wrote that song, Desert Song. That even though it was a problem, it was a difficulty, nobody would want that. God uses an opportunity to proclaim his name. And what we see through the book of Acts is that God takes these obstacles, he makes some opportunities, these persecutions and problems, he brings them as platforms, and it's because these guys are so focused on that mission, they're compelled to preach the gospel, something they have to do. And so they make a big deal about the name of Jesus Christ. And we're going to read through this passage in Acts chapter 4, and you're going to see the persecution that takes place there, but I want you to notice the emphasis that's given to the name. The big idea of the passage is the name of Jesus Christ. And look at it, we'll read verses 1 through 12, and what's happening here is there was that guy that was crippled, it was at the temple gate, he gets healed, a big crowd gathers around, and then Acts chapter 4 and verse 1 reads like this. It says, The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus, the first mention of his name, the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Now, it's an interesting note here. Uh, We'll see throughout Acts, we've already seen it once, uh, that God gives us a continual update on numbers. Now, some people say numbers, numbers don't matter, you shouldn't count numbers. Well, God seems to really care about numbers. And he talks about it a lot here, but here's why. It's not because it's like, hey, this many victories for me. It's not the Duke and UNC and all that basketball. It's not that. It's not even just look at my success. It's not, you know, some of you are hunters. It's not like, I killed three deer this weekend and they were this many points. You know, it's not that. It's not just numbers for stats of his victory. Each one of those numbers represents a person. Each one of those people has a story. And when they turn their lives over to Jesus Christ, God's changed their story. That's the very reason why Jesus Christ came. And so the numbers matter to God because people matter to God. Somebody was counting because he had them count because they matter. And he says here, there's now 5,000 men. Remember in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, there were three, or verse 41, there were 3,000 people. Now there's 5,000 men. That might be as many as 10,000 people when you count the women and the children and everybody. It says next day, the next day, here's the situation. The rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest, and it's interesting we get these names here. Annas the high priest was there. So was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men in the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders and all the people of Israel, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you elders and teachers and these big powerful guys, the names we just saw. You and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the capstone, or some of your translations say cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. What we see here is an emphasis on name all throughout the passage. Did you see it? Now, just that famous verse at the end, verse 12, there's no other name by which he must be saved. It's got the power to save that name. But did you see why they were arrested? It wasn't because they healed a crippled guy. Go back to verse 2 if you have your Bible or you've got an app that will scroll back to that. And you'll see in verse 2 the reason why they were arrested is because they were proclaiming in Jesus the name, Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. And then you go, and it's interesting after God gives that update on the numbers that you see this list of names. It's the who's who of the royal, the priestly, the elderly, the religious leaders of the day. That's Annas and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. It's like the red carpet there. Names. And then they ask a question about the name. I think it's interesting in verse 7 when they ask the question, they don't just ask by what power. They could have just said that. And they don't just ask by what name, but it's like the two go together. Power and name are synonymous with one another. He says, by what power and what name do you do these things? And then Peter says, you want to know the name? I'll tell you the name. Verse 10. It's the name Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. And by the way, verse 12, it's the name that's above every other name. There's no other name like this. It's the name of Jesus Christ. And what he's showing is that there's power in the name. And that's our main point and our only point today. That there's power in the name. It's not just power in a name. There's power in the name. It's the name Jesus Christ. 
And I think innately we all know there's power in any, any name and names in general. And it's, we might not give it as much credit as people have in the past, but you think about it as if you're a parent, uh, if you've ever named a child or you're thinking about naming a child, what you know, process that can be as you think through the name of your child. You want to think through stuff. And you think about it for certain reasons. Like you don't want to name them something they're going to get made fun of on the playground. And so you don't name them, you know, like Schmerd. They're going to call them Nerd, you know, whatever. Whatever name you'd come up with. That is not the best example. But anyway, you're not going to make the name of something that rhymes with something bad. And so you, you, you kind of think through this. But most of us, we pick names. We pick we want to either be creative or we want to be cute or go with the rest of our family. Or maybe you pick a family name, traditional. We don't realize how powerful names really are. The Romans used to have a saying. And we'll put it up on the screen. The Romans used to say that nomen is omen. Nomen est omen. And you can remember that. It's easy to remember. But you know what it actually means is that name is destiny. That your name is your destiny. Now, I wouldn't go that far. But I do think that names are incredibly influential. I was doing some reading about that this week. And I was very interested. It was way, way beyond what I realized how influential names could be. Not just like getting picked on the playground and it sounds cute or whatever type of thing. But there were all these studies that have been done on this. And there are some researchers that believe that there are a disproportionate amount of people in certain fields based on their name. Like, for instance, there are a disproportionate amount of dentists named Dennis. Which I thought, maybe we just got called Dennis my whole life, so I just, Dennis, sounds a lot like dentist. I'll be a dentist. I don't know how that decision got made. But there are a disproportionate amount of lawyers named Lauren. And there was, in the same article, I was reading through it, and I had this one uh, young lady that she was speaking about how she chose her career and how people had always told her they thought she was going to be an attorney. Her name was S-U-E-Y-O-O. And I I read it, and I thought, I don't get it. And what's the thing? And then I said it out loud, sue you. (laughs) There you go. I guess it just, for her, it happened. And and in that same article, it said, you know, there's a well-known family in West Virginia named Great House. They run a real estate firm. There's a well-known cardiologist up in Rhode Island. His last name is Hart. And so I, started, I was like, there's something to this. Like, what's happening here? And they cited a controversial study that happened in 2007. In 2007, they did a study that said not only your name, but even your initials can influence your behavior. And they studied a bunch of students. And what they said is that students who had uh, names that ended or, had, or, or began with A or B tended to have a higher grade point average because they gravitated towards their grade. So if your name is Chris or Dennis, I'm so sorry. Somehow you became a dentist, even though you got D's. But that's what the study said, was that people that had C and D in their name had a lower grade point average, like they gravitated to the lower, like they were something in their egocentrism, whatever all that talk is. Uh, it kind of drew them to that deal. And it also said uh, that your last name can have an influence on the way that you shop. There was another article that said this, which I thought was great, and it'll give you some excuses if you've made bad purchases and your name starts at the end of the alphabet. So here's what it is. And they said that people at the beginning of the alphabet, last names that are, you know, A through the very beginning part, um, purchase differently than people whose names start from R to Z. And they believe it's because of a lifetime of conditioning that you get called on last. You know, in school, you're the last in line, and you, you don't get as many opportunities because you're towards the end. And so when you get an opportunity, you're quicker, the people were all quicker to purchase, were quicker to jump at these opportunities. So if you've made a bad purchase, R to Z, can blame it on that. It's your name. <laughs> names have power. I don't think they're destiny necessarily, but they certainly have influence. And if you think about different names, there are certain names that are more powerful than others, aren't there? You think about your coworker's name. It may elicit some response to you, whoever you work with, but they're a peer. And so your boss's name has more power than them and probably elicits different emotions in you. But not only your boss's name, but then the owner's name or stockholders, whoever they are, they would have more power than the boss, but then the president. If we say the president, then they would have more power than any of those. But there's a name that's above all the names. It's the name of Jesus. And we sang about it today, but it's also throughout the Gospels. It's only at the name of Jesus that demons have to flee. There's something about that name. It's only at the name of Jesus that you see people healed in the Scripture. You see dead people raised to life in the Scripture. And you read the Scripture, and you see he's got multiple names. You see in the Gospel of John, he's called the light of the world. He's the Word of God in the Gospel of John. So he's from the beginning, he's the creator, that he is God. He calls himself the I Am. When he says his name, when he responds back to people that come to arrest him, they fall to the ground. There's power in his name. It's not power just in a name. Well, I think all names have influence. There's power in the name of Jesus Christ. And when you understand that, you have to respond to him. You know, every once in a while you meet somebody, you can say to them, what do you think of Jesus? And, I don't know, he's a good teacher, a good example, moral. Okay, that's, not an, that's not even an option. Okay? If you understand that the person who says that, they don't understand who Jesus is. Because you've got to decide either Jesus was crazy because he claimed to be God or he is who he says he is. And so you have to respond to who he is when you understand he's God. 
You can reject him. That's, you, that's an option for you, but you can't be neutral about him. And the Sanhedrin, these religious people, they understood that, and so they had to respond to Jesus. And go back to the passage in verse 1. We'll walk back through this passage today. You know, this guy's healed, and this crowd gathers around. Peter and John are preaching, and then look what happens. This is the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees. And so who are these guys? Well, the priest, kind of obvious, they're the religious guys there. The temple guard is a police officer, but he's also a religious leader. He's actually second in command to the high priest. The high priest in this time was not just a religious function. That was the most influential Jewish person in the entire world. They'd be the most powerful Jew in the world, and it's a political position, not just a religious position. And the Sadducees, these are guys that are oftentimes known, if you've grown up in church, maybe you've heard before, they don't believe in anything supernatural. They don't believe in demons. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in afterlife. And uh, some people will say, and this is cheesy, but some people will say, uh, that is why they are sad, you see. I know. But you'll remember it now. Sadducees, they don't believe anything, they don't believe anything supernatural. But see, we can get focused on that, and we miss the fact that their real agenda was political. They were leaders of this group of people together are called the Sanhedrin, and it was a majority of them were Sadducees. There were also Pharisees. We read about in the gospel, and there's these other, there's lay elders that are there, but the majority of them are Sadducees, and they have the power, they have the control, they have the money, they've got all the influence. And their real issue, they're in cahoots with Rome, who rules the whole world at this time, and they get Jerusalem, they're a little piece of the pie that they get to manage, they get to control, and here's the deal, as long as everything stays status quo, They get to keep their control. They get to keep their money. They get to keep their elitism. They get to keep their positions. They get to keep their power. Their real issue with Jesus wasn't just theological. It was practical. And they didn't want their lives changing. And so they explain away Jesus. And they explain away the supernatural. Why? So that they can have control and they can have everything the way they want it to be. Can you imagine if your religious leaders treated Jesus that way? You explain him away. Explain away the power. He doesn't really do this stuff. Here's what, this isn't really what happens. And they believed, they didn't believe in a personal Messiah. What they believed in was a messianic ideal. That there wasn't a Messiah who actually came as a person to save people, but it was an age that we'd live in. And they actually believed that they were living in that age. And of course they would, right? They're the wealthy. They're the elite. They've got the situation all under control. And so what they teach is that. Can you imagine if that was the teaching of religious leaders? Some people would say that's American Christianity. You follow Jesus. There's not, it's not really supernatural stuff. It'll give you a better family, a uh, better life in general. You live by these moral principles, these guides. It'll make your life better, better circumstances, and you'll be in control. That's a lot of times what's actually taught amongst Christianity. Here's the scary thing. Sadducees had no problem with American Christianity. They got a serious problem with Jesus, though. And so what happens is the Sadducees, they come in here. They're upset. It says they were greatly disturbed. And verse 1 says they came up to Peter and John, which I think is an interesting way for the NIV to say this. They're the police, right? Have you ever seen Cops, the show Cops? Yeah, a bunch of you are chuckling because you're like, I don't want to tell you, but I have. (laughs) Bad boys, bad boys. You know, they come in. Police, when they come in, they're like kicking doors down. They're jumping over fences. They're always chasing a guy who doesn't have a shirt on, too. Did you ever notice that? Bad guys don't have shirts on. But anyway, they're chasing these guys. They're running out. They're grabbing. They're not just like, "Uh, when you're done with your illegal activity, I'd like to speak with you. (laughs) That's kind of how the NIV sounds here, though. Uh, The Sadducees, they came up to Peter. Excuse me, when you're done preaching about Jesus, we'd like to talk. Some of you might have New American Standard, English Standard, King James, Revised Standard. They all translate it differently, and I think it's a stronger translation. It says that they came upon them. And then it says after that they laid hands on them. This is a physical encounter. There was no more of this talking about Jesus stuff. In the midst of their sermon, the police get in Peter's face, get in John's face, and they're shutting this thing down. They bust up in their grill. They said, this is done. Grab a hold of these dudes. They throw them in the clink. Okay, they're going to jail. They're going to jail overnight. Here's why. It's illegal to have a trial at night. Do you remember Jesus? They broke the law for him. But in this case, they're going to obey their own law. They throw Peter and John in jail. And then verse 4 is a contrast. It starts with the word but. But many who heard the message believed, and the number grew to about 5,000. That's interesting. Because you think about it if you're Peter and John. So far, through the first three chapters, everything's been, yeah, everything we do is like, everything you touch turns to gold. Everything you have, preach a message, 3,000 people get saved. Then we live in this idealistic, like, utopian community. Everybody's loving one another and giving their stuff and sharing with each other and caring about one another. Then this guy gets healed and more people want to come, and it's just like, yeah, now we get arrested. Can you think about what you might think if you were Peter and John? Like, God, why'd you do this? Now people aren't going to believe in you because they're going to think if they believe in you, then they're going to go to jail. That's kind of how we function as Americans. It's not necessarily what Peter and John were thinking. It's what we might think if we were in their situation. 
Because many of us, we feel a pressure. We tell somebody about Jesus. You've got to tell them this. If you trust Jesus, I'll fix all your problems. If you trust Jesus, if you just believed enough, you'd be healed. If you just trust Jesus, then your marriage would be fixed. I'm telling you, your debts would go away, and all these things would, it's just all this, what would happen, and all your problems would go away if you just trust Jesus. We have this pressure to tell that. Let me tell you, that pressure comes from the American dream, not from the Bible. That's, that's our idea. And there are people, I mean, you, know, we might, you might say, well, I wouldn't say that your disease would be healed, or I wouldn't say it. And you might start thinking that, but it's there, it's underlying all our stuff. I've met people who speak that boldly about it. I remember when I was in seminary, the way I paid my way through seminary is I sold houses. And uh, some of you have bought a house before. And unless you have cash to pay for that house, what you do is you go to the bank first, and the bank tells you how much you can spend, and they give you what's called a pre-approval letter. And I remember I was meeting with this one guy, and uh, he had his pre-approval letter, and he came in, and he showed me what he could borrow, and he said he wanted to buy a house for that much, and he told me what kind of house he wanted. And I said to him, um, I don't think you need to spend that much to get the kind of house that you're wanting. You don't actually need that. And he said, oh, no, 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 this, this one, I'm going to spend that much, which as a salesperson, it's like, okay, <laughs> it'd be great. Uh, but I was trying to share with him. I was like, well, you're just saying, you know, you're just a single guy, and you said you want a three-bedroom, two, and you don't have to have all that. And then he said to me, no, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian too. And I thought, I just don't see how these correlate at this moment. And uh, he said, I got to show this faith stuff works. And then he said to me, the car out front, it's got to be a certain kind of car. And he told me the kinds of cars that it had to be. And he said, and the watch, and he shows me his watch. I don't even know what kind of watch he was wearing, but apparently it was nice. I didn't even wear a watch. That's <laughs> why I'm late. But anyway, the, uh, he showed me the watch, and, and I was just, I mean, as a sales guy, it's like, whatever, man. If you want to spend all that money, that's, that's cool. But, but really, your thought process is that's Christianity? Because that's not what the Bible says. And it's certainly not what it demonstrates. And many of us would think to ourselves, what if bad things happen? Then, then maybe I didn't have enough faith, or, or maybe I didn't do this right, or maybe God isn't really who he says. And that's not from the scriptures. You see, here you see, but what God does while they're being arrested, and we might think, well, then people would say, I don't want to follow God because I'll get arrested. No, maybe what those people thought was, wow, if Peter and John had an encounter with Jesus, and they're willing to go to jail for him, then I want to know that guy. Or they're willing to die for him, then I, then I want to know that Jesus. And that's what's happening. Is God's growing the body now 5,000 men. He just counts the heads of the households here, perhaps 10,000 people. And then it says the scene, to get back to what's happening, verse 5. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law, that's the Sanhedrin, that's the supreme court of their day. They're the most powerful men of the day. They've got the authority, they've got the power. And then verse 6, Annas the high priest was there. What was roll call? It's a red carpet. Luke doesn't tell us what they're wearing, but it's kind of like the red carpet. Annas was there. Caiaphas was there. John was there. Alexander was there. And other people that weren't important enough to mention, but they had a party. So they're, they're all there. And it's interesting that they call Annas the high priest here because he's not. And you read the Gospels and you can see that. It was Caiaphas that was the high priest. Now, Annas was an ex-high priest. He was deposed by Rome, if you read the history that goes behind this passage. And uh, he was no longer holding the office. Why does Luke call him high priest? Well, it's a lot like if I said to you today, well, our president's here with us today, uh, President Clinton or President Bush or pres- any past president. Now, President Obama's actually the president. But out of respect for the office, we still say president to whoever the person is that held that office. Annas is called here the high priest. And here's the other thing about Annas. He's still got all the power. Even though Rome removed him, he's like the, the, the Don Carleone. He's like the godfather of priests. He's got, he's, he might not hold the position, he's got the power. And we know that's true from history because he appoints to the, the, the throne whoever the next high priest are. Five of his sons become the next high priest. Caiaphas, the guy who's the high priest right now, holds it longer than anyone ever held it. I, think, I believe it was 18 years. He appoints him. It's his son-in-law. He picks. So he's got the power. And so here he walks in with the rest of the Sanhedrin, which would be 70 other people of the most influential people in the world. They walk in, they would sit in semicircles so they could see each other, and in the middle of the semicircle, they'd bring the accused. Josephus tells us that most of the accused would come in, they'd wear mourning clothes, like we'd wear black to a funeral, they'd wear their their mourning clothes to humble themselves before the court, and they were sad and they they were submissive to whatever the the court said because of how powerful these men are. So you're trying to imagine being a Galilean fisherman, being brought out here before these guys. He brings them out there. And then Annas asked the question. He would speak. He'd be the voice on behalf of these other guys. And he asked this question in verse 7. 
So Peter and John are brought before them, and he began to question them. They began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? It's almost as if Annas could have a smirk on his face. (laughs) Certainly it's not more powerful than my name. Most powerful man in the world in this Jewish world. By what name? And it's almost a trap to Peter and John. Because the Bible says, not just what the Sanhedrin says, but the Bible says if you do a miracle and it gets attributed to anyone other than God, you're to be stoned. And so there's a right answer here. And the right answer is, God, can we go now? You know, that's kind of how it's supposed to go. That's not what happens, though. Notice what takes place in verses 8 through 12. It says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. How did that happen? Because he submitted to God. Not because he mustered it up, not because he did something. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he says to them, and he begins to speak to them. And notice what happens here. Is that Peter could do so many things. Try and get himself out of this situation. Like, it wasn't really that big of a deal. You know, a guy got healed. He mentions that, but I said, can we just go now? Like, we won't cause any more problems. I'll go fishing after this is done. If it was God, like, that'd be the easy answer. What would most of us do? What Peter does here is he sees this as an opportunity. It's not, woe is me. I'm a victim. I can't believe God allowed this to happen to me. It's now I've got a platform I didn't have before this. Now I'm talking to the most powerful man in the world, and I'm not going to miss the opportunity to tell him about Jesus Christ. What's going to happen to me? It doesn't even matter. It's irrelevant. This guy, why is he acting like this? Why is he so upset about this thing? You know why? Because he's got control issues. Because he's got power issues. Because he's got issues in his heart. The scripture tell us about. That each one of us longs for something that will never be filled by all that other stuff. It can only be filled by Jesus. And Peter realizes that. And compelled, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, compelled to preach the gospel. He turns the table on the Sanhedrin. He puts them on trial which is an interesting thing. For any of you who've considered investigating Jesus, you know, when we talk about evidence that the man's a verdict, it's a great book, and uh, I think Lee Strobel's got one, More Than a Carpenter, and there's Jesus on Trial, and all these different books that you can go look up to figure out all the evidence about Jesus, and should I really put my faith in him? Let me remind you of something. Jesus isn't on trial, you are. As you go through that investigation, the Spirit of God's doing a work in your heart that you're even interested. And Jesus didn't need a Savior, you do. He is a savior. He is a redeemer. You need redemption. He is a reconciler. You need reconciliation. You've been separated from God. He hasn't. You're the one on trial, not him. And that's what Peter's showing here to the Sanhedrin. Listen, Annas, you're on trial. I'm not. And look at how he does it. Verses 8 and 9 are real interesting. In verse 8, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. That's important to know. But then look at what he says. It says, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account, Today, for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, and ask how he was healed. In other words, it's kind of the intro to his message here. Uh, let's just think about how ridiculous it is that we're even standing here right now. Uh, there was a guy, he's 40 years old. He hasn't been able to walk his whole life. He used to beg from you all the time, and now he's healed, so we stand here. <laughs> That's interesting, right? How ridiculous that we've been arrested. And you think about, can you imagine a couple weeks ago, uh, I preached a message, and we were talking about noticing other people's needs. I talked about yellow Jeeps. Somebody said to me on the way into the service, well, I can't believe you told me about those yellow Jeeps. Like, now I keep seeing them everywhere. Talk about noticing needs, though. Like, once something's pointed out, you notice it. Talk about being moved to meet those needs. Can you imagine if today, after church, you go to eat lunch, and you see somebody, you think you could bless them by buying their lunch. You buy their lunch, and then somebody slaps the handcuff on it. You know, they, they arre- can you imagine getting arrested for doing a good deed? Like, people get arrested for ridiculous stuff in, in this country, I believe. Uh, I read a story a few years ago about a, a kid that actually got arrested for opening up his Christmas presents early. I am so glad my parents did not press charges. I mean... I'm in trouble if that happened. And we, we, you, can you imagine, though, if you actually got arrested for doing good? And that's what Peter's saying here. Uh, uh, we're standing here today because of the miracle that happened. You remember that guy couldn't walk, and that's, that's why we're here? And you want to know the name. Uh, if you want to know the name, I'll tell you the name. Look at verse 10. Then know this. You and all the people of Israel, everybody needs to know this. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Be real specific. There's no mistaking who we're talking about. The one that you killed? You can go back to the Gospels a couple months earlier. And the first person Jesus is taken to after he's arrested is Caiaphas' house. And Annas is there. He sent him to Pilate. They condemned him to death so that Pilate would kill him. Whom you killed. If there's any name they don't want to hear, it's Jesus. I thought they were done with Jesus. Whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. It doesn't matter if you believe in resurrection, it happened. 
And that's why there's 500 eyewitnesses around Jerusalem at that time that are talking about it, because it happened. So it doesn't really matter, Annas, whether you believe this or not, but you want to know what name we operate by? You want to know our mode of operation? You want to know how we live our lives? You want to know where our power comes from? It comes from Jesus Christ. And so I ask you as a Christian, what about you? What name do you live by? We all live by some name that we point people to as a result of the things that we do. It could be the name of your family. It could be your name, the name of your company, name of an organization. It could be the name of Jesus Christ. When you think about your life, what name do you live by? In the Bible, to live by a name or to operate by a name meant not only did you have the power and the authority of that name, but it meant you operated according to the will of the person, according to the desire of that person. And so to live in Jesus' name would mean to do this. It means that in every circumstance you're in, you're thinking about how would Jesus respond in this circumstance. In your marriage, you're being the kind of spouse that Jesus would be if he were in your exact situation. That means in, in your job, you're being the kind of worker, kind of employee, that Jesus would be if he were in your situation. That's to live in his name. That means that the relationship you have with your neighbors is the kind of relationship Jesus would have with your neighbors if he lived in your home. The, the, the people that you interact with, the business deals that you do, the decisions you make, you're making the decisions you believe Jesus would make if he were in your situation. And, and that's why we pray a lot of times in Jesus' name. You see, we talk about in Jesus' name, in the scriptures, Jesus taught the disciples how to pray in the gospels, and he said, you pray in my name. Why? Because you're praying the things that I would pray if I were in your situation. Now, you hear Christians pray in Jesus' name, right? And is that why we pray in Jesus' name? Let me tell you why we pray in Jesus' name, really, a lot of times. It's because we hope that God will then answer the prayer because we just said in Jesus' name at the end. I want to win the lottery in Jesus' name. Really? That's what Jesus would pray if he were in your situation. Hmm. Forget the fact that he can go get money out of the mouth of a fish if he wants to. Okay, Take that off the table. Uh, but that's what he's going to pray? Or you think about other prayers that we pray. God, I pray that he makes this free throw next month, right, or later. So my team can cut down the nets. Okay, he's dealing with world hunger, AIDS, people going to hell, divorces, and your team cut down the nets. That's like supposed to be <laughs> if you were in your... Uh. Do you know what we're really doing? We're really saying, Jesus, I'd like you to do my bidding. Would you do my will? Be my gopher boy, my personal assistant. And that doesn't mean that he's Lord. That means that we, like Annas, we still want to be in control. We want the power. We want our thing done. We want the wealth. We want the position. We want the, and you fill in the blank with your desires. And that's not, that's not living in his name. And so I just ask as a believer, and Jesus, if you are, whose name do you point people to with your life? Your work? Your organization? You? Your family? Jesus. And here's an important fact to remember. Everything that we put Jesus' name on, God is not attached to. And you think about that throughout human history, and you think about some of the things that have been done, some of the atrocious things that have been done, in the name of Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean Jesus was a part of those things, just because his name was put on them. It doesn't mean that he was a part of it, it doesn't mean he was desired, it doesn't mean any of that stuff. And we see that throughout Scripture. We're going to come to a story, a crazy story, later in Acts chapter 19, where there's some priests, they're out casting out demons, and they've heard Paul preach about Jesus, they know the name Jesus, and they heard Paul preach about him. And so then when they're casting out demons, they say, in, in the name that Jesus, that Paul preaches, cast out demons. And demons are going out. But there's one day in Acts chapter 19 where the demons are speaking back to them. Look at what it says. Acts chapter 19, verse 15 says, One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? <laughs> uh oh And then verse 16, Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, plural, and overwhelmed them all, he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That's uh, what Bible scholars call a demonic butt whooping. <laughs> they, that was bad news. But wait, they were using the name of Jesus. So does that mean Jesus was a part of it? No, Jesus isn't a part of everything that his name gets attached to. And so that's kind of scary when we start to ask not just about things throughout history and circumstances we see in the Bible, but what about our lives? Because there's, there's some scary passages too where his name gets talked about. He's, in Matthew chapter 7, he talks to a group of people. He's talking about religious people to beware of. And he says, not everyone, there's going to come a day where not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who operate according to my Father's will in heaven. Verse 22 says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? To prophesy means they're proclaiming Jesus. They're teaching the scriptures. Did we not prophesy in your name? Wow. So it wasn't like just to build their own kingdom or it wasn't some crazy, wacky teaching. It was in your name. And in your name, drive out demons. And it worked that time. 
and, and perform many miracles like opening eyes and telling lame people to walk in your name. And then look at what he says. Because then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. He doesn't say you didn't know my name. So I'm not asking you, do you know the name Jesus? Have you said the name Jesus? Did you sing the name Jesus? Can we read the name Jesus? I'm not asking you any of that stuff. I'm asking you, you pray to prayer someday. But I'm asking you, when you look at your life, what does it point people to? Because the problem in this passage, Jesus says, is you didn't know me, I didn't know you. It wasn't that we didn't know each other's names. Something was missing. You know what was missing? So Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, it says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And it's all throughout Scripture. Peter's already preached it in Acts chapter 2 when he quoted the prophet Joel. So it comes from the book of Joel 2 and Joel chapter 2. And then in Acts chapter 2 and verse 21, it says, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's the same. We can put them all up on the screen. They all say the same thing. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord, right? Isn't that kind of the question? If it just meant to say his name or to know his name, then let me give you a great evangelism technique. I could write Jesus on a piece of paper, just write his name, walk up to people and go, what does that say? You'd say, Jesus. I'd be like, all right, he's in. What? How about you? Jesus. All right, they're in. They called on the name. That's not what it means to call on the name, though. You know what it means? And we're going to see it throughout the book of Acts. You know what it means to call on the name of Jesus? It means to surrender control. It's a surrender control of your life that he becomes Lord. Uh, another way to say that, not, not as christian of a way to say that, is that he's master. In other words, he gets to call the shots in your life. That's what it is to call on the name of Jesus Christ. That's the name that has the power to save. It's Jesus Christ. And so when you look at your life, none of you said the name Jesus. You try and attach Jesus to what you do and all that stuff. And you try and, When you do the stuff that you want to do and try and attach Jesus to it so somehow he'll bless it, and when you do the time out, like, I just don't really want you here as this part of my life, do you know what you're actually doing? You're rejecting Jesus. It's the very thing that Annas was doing. And that's what Peter says to him. He says, you, you builders, you rejected him. He's quoting Psalm 118, verse 22 here. It becomes a very popular quotation about the Messiah. Jesus himself used it in the Gospels. He says, the stone, you builders, you know, the builders, the ones who are in control, the ones who decide how everything works, uh, you rejected. He's become the cornerstone. And no matter what you do, he's different than you. He's got more power than you. The stone you build is rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. Then verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There's no name like this, Annas, the most powerful man in the world. Dear little smirk, let me remind you of something. There's a reason why you do what you do, Annas. There's a reason why you won't follow Jesus. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us why. There's an emptiness in your heart. See, everyone longs for eternity, is what Ecclesiastes says. And we try to fill it with all kinds of things, different stuff that we worship. For Annas, power, control, education, wealth, position, it's all there. And there's a reason why he's still being so controlling, because he's still lacking. It's interesting, the word that Peter uses here when he says salvation to them, when he says there's uh, no other name in which you must be saved, it's also used back in verse 9, but if you read verse 9, you'll see that it doesn't say the word saved. It's the Greek word sozo. And what he says to them is this. You want to know how this man was sozoed, healed? How he was physically healed? Because that word means wholeness. See, that word that's used for salvation, talking about in a spiritual sense in verse 12, talking about a physical wholeness in verse 9. It's the word that means that you're made complete. He's saying to Annas, there's something lacking in your life. You know how you're made complete? It's by calling on the name of Jesus Christ because there's no other name that will fulfill your life. There's no other name that's going to meet those needs you're trying to meet with power and success and position and you fill in the blank whatever your stuff is. That's what he's saying to Annas here. There's no other name other than the name of Jesus Christ. I saw this powerfully illustrated last weekend. I was able to be in uh, Dallas, Texas for a a men's conference. There's about 2,000, 3,000 men there. And uh, for a gentleman, I don't know if you've ever been to something like that before, but it's great. Uh, hearing all those men sing is great. For one, because you don't have to like try and go higher <laughs> when you're in the group and all that. But uh, it's kind of like a machismo fest. You know, it's kind of a macho. Guys do all this stuff. It's a Jesus meeting. Like we were talking about Jesus and stuff, but all the guys are there and they're sharing testimonies about lives that have been changed. They got athletes. Lance Berkman shared a testimony about his life and he's a baseball player if you don't know who he is. Uh, there was a guy that was a soldier who had lost his legs in battle. And so you got like athletes and soldiers and it's kind of like, yeah, like they love Jesus too. Feeling good about it. Uh, there's one testimony though that really stuck out to me. 
And it was just on a screen. It was a video that they played, and the guy was a hairdresser and a makeup artist. His name was Danny. And uh, what Danny said as he started to share a story, it's about 50 years old probably, I'm guessing just by the look of him in the video, is that when he was in his early 30s, he wanted to get to the center of his career and become successful, so he moved to Paris. And uh, while he was in Paris, it took about two months before he got his first cover of Vogue magazine. He said, once I got the first cover of Vogue magazine, my career just exploded. And he starts to share about what it was like at that point, being at the pinnacle of his job, and they showed him pictures of him and stuff. And he said he was making $3,000 a day working in the studio, and he worked in the studio every day. She said it was more than enough money to buy all the drugs that he wanted, which is what he got involved in. Started with pills, uh, progressed to cocaine, and eventually his drug of choice became heroin. And he talked about that. He said there was one day where he was in the studio in New York City, and he had this model come in. She was a beautiful redhead, young lady, and she started talking to him about the Lord. And he hadn't really been around people that talk like that before, and she started saying, you know, God loves you, God's got a plan for you, and saying these different things. And he said, my, I was just like, whatever. Like, I didn't have anything to say about it. I just kind of let her go for a while. And she talked as they were going through this meeting. And then when they were done, she said, uh, Danny, can I pray for you? I said, yeah, sure, that's fine. She grabs his hand and begins to pray right there. <laughs> that's kind of bold, right? And she grabs hold of his hand, and she starts to pray out loud. He said, I had never been around people praying out loud before, and so she's holding my hand, and I'm looking around at the studio with the rest of the people, and I'm like, he didn't know she was going to do this, and it was just kind of awkward. He's apologizing for her, like he feels awkward for her, and and she gets done praying, and uh, then she starts to share the the gospel with him. She starts to talk to him about Jesus, and she says, Danny, I've been watching you you for the last couple years, your work. I know who you work with, all these celebrities, and seeing these pictures, and you're in trouble. He wasn't in trouble, like by the police or anything. Now he had an emptiness in his soul. But he's just kind of listening to her talk about all this stuff. And, uh, and she sa- he said to her, I'm a hopeless case. Like, you don't understand. Like, I'm too far gone. And she said, there's no such thing as a hopeless case. And like what most of us would say if we were sharing the gospel. And then she says this statement to him. She says, Danny, the day that you call on the name of the Lord, he'll set you free. He said, well, I'm never coming to your church. I'm never calling on the name of the Lord. Said, the day you call on the name of the Lord, he will set you free. And she laughed and went about her thing. And he continued to do his career. And uh, sometime later, he said he was down in the Caribbean. And he would do drugs like in the studio. He, would go, he, he actually overdosed at the Caribbean while they were on a shoot. And he said that the company, they sent him back to New York City, fired him on a morals clause, and he didn't care. So all he wanted to do was drugs. And so one day in his apartment, uh, not too long after that, he took all the stuff in his apartment that had his name on it, he cut it up, threw it in the garbage because he didn't want to be known. And then he walked out, he put the keys on the, on the counter in his loft, 5,000 square foot loft in New York City, so it's not cheap. He walks out and decides he wants to live on the street. He wakes up in the street every morning, just wants to do drugs. He gets sick. He gets down to 108 pounds. He gets hepatitis A, B, C. Starts to develop all these phobias while he's on the street. He said, but every once in a while I go to a payphone, I'd call collect, and I would call Wanda. And I'd ask her if I could have some money. And she'd say, would you come by the church? You know, I've got choir practice today. Come by the church, I'll give you $20. And he'd come by the church. He wouldn't stay, and she'd give him $20, and he'd go back out. And then as he's sharing it on this video screen, I remember it struck me. It was almost like it struck him as he said it. He said, she never gave up on me. And then she, he said it three times. He's like, she never gave up. She just never gave up on me. And he talked about how as he was living on the streets and developing these phobias, he started to hear voices. The first voice that he heard would always accuse him. It was an accusing voice that would say all the stuff that he had done wrong, how he had blown it, the mistakes he was still going to make, and all the things that were wrong with him. It was this accusing voice. And eventually he started to develop a second voice, and they would speak simultaneously. The second voice would curse, would just swear, filthy language over and over. And so he's getting accused, he's got the filthy language going, and there was a third voice that came eventually. The third voice would just laugh, and would just laugh continually, always laughing. And so the filthy language and the laughing and the accusing were all happening all the time on a continual basis, and that was his existence. And he was getting sick, and he used to ride the train. And one day he's riding the train, and he's sitting there, and he kind of chuckled. He said, and then another drug addict said to me, you don't look very good. together in this right <laughs> you know whatever and and the guy said he looks at you look like you're dying he said at the next stop there's a hospital you should go and danny said i went to the hospital i did not want to die on the streets and so he's in this emergency room and he said in the voice all this craziness is happening and amidst the accusing and the swearing and the laughing he said and i don't know if it was a memory from what wanda said or if it was an angel but there was this little this sweet little voice and it said danny the day you call on the name of the lord you'll be set free and he said, so I did. And it stopped. All the voices stopped. And he said, and that was 11 years ago. And they haven't come back. And then he said, the thing about God is, he goes so above and beyond what we even ask. 
He said, I just wanted to get out of a jam. I didn't want to die. He said, and he gave me a new life. And not only did he give me a new life, but he went above and beyond that. Is that he said, God takes us, it's almost like we're his trophies in the sense he wants to show us off to the world and say, look what I did in their life, that's what I can do in yours. And he said, in my life, it was like he said, look, I give mercy. I can give this guy mercy. I can give you mercy. How? You call on the name of the Lord. Because when you call on the name of the Lord, this is the only name that can do this stuff. It's at the name of Jesus that demons flee. It's at the name of Jesus that voices stops. It's at the name of Jesus that addiction is bound. It's at the name of Jesus that salvation comes. And that's why Peter says, it's at the name of Jesus by which you must be saved. It's not the name of Allah. It's not the name of Buddha. It's not your own good works. If it's Mormon or if it's Jehovah's Witness or whatever other cult that says that you've got to do enough, it's not your name. It's not your company's name. It's not your church's name. It's not any name. It's not your parents' name. It's only the name Jesus Christ. It's when you call on the name of Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. And some of you need to call on the name of Jesus. Some of you need to call on the name of Jesus for a new start as Christians. Some of you need to call on the name of Jesus because you're hearing voices. And maybe they're not audible yet, but you got the accusations there. And that's not true. You need to call on the name of Jesus Christ. Some of you need forgiveness. You need to call on the name of Jesus Christ. It's the, there's no other name like that. Let's pray. Father, I come before you, and I come with my friends. I come with family. I come with people I've never seen before. And you know stuff that's in their hearts and in their lives I have no idea about. Will you speak into that? There are some people that need to call on your name today, and I pray what I believe Jesus would pray if he were here in my position. I pray that they would call on your name today. I pray that those that need to trust your son Jesus Christ as Savior, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would pray and acknowledge their sin before you, acknowledge that they've been managing their life, that they've been in control, and they'd surrender control today and ask your son Jesus Christ to be their Savior and let him be their master. And I pray for those that maybe need a second chance. They've called on your son Jesus before, but they've gotten off track and they need to come back to you. That I pray today would be the day they would call on your son Jesus and ask for that second chance. I pray for those that have control issues, that today would be the day they would surrender control. I pray for any that have addictions, that today they would call on your son Jesus and that you would bind that addiction and you would heal that. Father, I pray for marriages that are having trouble. I pray, God, right now, that they would call on your name, that you'd become Lord of their marriage, that you'd be invited in or back in. God, I pray for, there's so many things here that I can't even guess. If God's speaking to your heart and you've got something you need to call on his name about, I pray that you would just call on his name right now. In your own words, in your heart as we pray, the different people calling on the name of the Lord for different things, addictions perhaps, sin struggles maybe, just forgiveness that you need, you call on his name. And Father, I come before you with every one of these folks and I pray that your name would be glorified through what you do in our hearts. Today and the days ahead, I pray for everyone who's called on your name to be Savior and called on your name to be Lord, that, that we would live according to your will, that we would live according to your plan, that we would live according to your name, that when we're given the opportunity to give account for why it is we do what we do, that we would point people to your name, that you'd be made known, that you'd compel us to your son, Jesus Christ, that he'd be evident, and that he'd receive all glory and all power. It's in Jesus' name as majestic and righteous and holy, a name that's unlike any other name that I pray. Amen.